Now, when I'm very good and do as I am told, I'm Mama's little angel and Papa says I'm good as gold. The stars are ageless. You brought this on yourself. Horror loves a bad mother. Margaret White in Carrie, Debbie Salt in Scream 2, Erica Sayers in Black Swan, Annie in Hereditary, Pamela Voorhees in Friday the 13th actually scratched that, just as for Pamela. Welcome to the Final Girls podcast. I'm Anna Bogutska, your podcast host. And in this series of the Final Girls, I'm journeying through an often under-discussed and under-explored subgenre of horror known either as hagspotation, hag horror, psychobiddy horror, or grand damn guignol. Throughout this episode, you'll hear from friend of the pod and Freudian film critic Mary Wilde. And as a primary source for this whole series, I've used the book Crazy Old Ladies by Carolyn Young, who you've also seen pop up throughout the series. In the last episode, I spoke with Mary as well as Mahal Badrawi about the peak hag era that came in the 60s directly after the release and commercial success of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. We're going to be jumping ahead now to the 70s, where the hagspotation formula is in full swing, but it's no longer getting as much attention. And the horror films that are being made are more in the vein of exploitation films and proto-slashers than they are aiming for the gothic classiness of some of the earlier titles that we have discussed. In last week's episode, I talked about how central this idea of failure was for hack horror as a whole. And this week, I'm looking at what failure looks like specifically for mothers. Now, before we fully begin the discussion, please be warned that this episode contains discussion of abuse, sexual assault, incest, homophobia. If you find any of these topics disturbing or upsetting, please feel free to skip this episode. Now, to begin with, let's set the scene about what motherhood means to horror more generally and why bad mother is a label that can so easily become attached to a female character in a horror film, whether she wants or doesn't want to be a mother, whether she is or isn't one. You know, it's, it's, it's a trope that's quite popular, I find, um, in horror. Uh, it's a corruption of the nurturing impulse, which is something that women are conditioned socially to have. Like, whether an individual autonomous a you know woman wants to have a child or not she is bombarded with messages about being a mother like pressurizing her to start a family that somehow her femininity her very you know womanhood is wrapped and fused in this identity of being a giving nurturing mother who is selfless and like sacrifices her life for her children and her family so if this value in in this wider belief system and is in any way like 
you know, sort of disabled or, you know, somehow not functioning according to plan or if it's absent, then I think the bad mother label is attached to women you know um if if as you said if 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 a woman does decide to be a mother and then neglects the child or on the other hand if she's overbearing like she's show, showing too much love too much attention is like too strict and just you know too present like over present in her child's life it sort of swings between those two extremes you know that's when this um, nurturing impulse is somehow corrupted. Now, of course, heaven for fun, if the woman decides to be childless, you know, then it is sort of always couched and contextualized as if she's somehow deranged. You know, there must be something lacking in a woman if she decides not to have a child. You know, there's, it's, it's never really like looked at in an investigative, curious way or an accepting way. It's, it's just labeled this, you know, this is not natural. So I think that bad mother falls under this idea of going against nature itself. Last week, I briefly went over Straightjacket, the 1964 William Castle Joan Crawford joint. What I did not bring up last episode is the nightmarish Freudian clusterfuck that this film is because, and spoiler alert for a film from 1964, turns out that the killer in Straightjacket is not the imprisoned axe murderer Lucy, who's the character played by Crawford, but Lucy's daughter Carol, who has created a mask of her mother's face bought clothing replicating her mother's clothing for when she was younger, shoes and earrings that echo her mother's shoes and earrings, and has started killing people with an axe in the exact same way that Lucy had 20 years before, with the intention of framing Lucy for murder and putting her away into a mental institution again. Now, I have a soft spot for a straitjacket because of how batshit it is. And when I first saw it, I thought I had clicked on the wrong film. Mary Wilde had a similarly strange experience re-watching this film for this episode. Well, it's funny, Anna, because um, I had seen it when I was way too young to understand <laughs> what this film was about. And it really scared me because I found... Joan Crawford's makeup and her mannerisms and what was going on in the movie, genuinely terrifying. Like I always found that to be a horror film from my child's eyes, you know? Um, but essentially um, I, I rewatched it also, like obviously in prep for this, for this show. And you, I mean, you're absolutely spot on. It's extremely Freudian. Um, <laughs> it's basically that like the plot follows a woman who having murdered her husband and, and his lover um, decades prior is suspected of a series of axe murders following her release from a psychiatric hospital. Um, I think that, you know, the casting here is perfect. Uh, Joan Crawford is extremely convincing in her role. I mean, <laughs> it's funny, like rewatching it now, obviously I had blocked out a lot of it from when I was a child but re-watching it now I was kind of hoping to see more straight jacket action <laughs> <laughs> not, a, not enough straight jacket and straight jacket yeah exactly I was a bit let down you know but 
I wanted to see like padded cells and like the mm-hmm. whole thing. But I mean, all jokes aside, um, I like that it's very melodramatic. You know, it leans into that very, very heavily. And I did find it entertaining. It, and it's revealing something really interesting you know, at a Freudian level in terms of um, those early formative years for children, what they witness, the way Mm -hmm. that trauma acts and shapes their personalities and Mm -hmm. really their lives as adults and how patterns can get repeated, uh, how things can get internalized. The twist in the film is revealed in the most insanely over-the-top way, The real Lucy, that's the real John Crawford, opens the door and she is confronted with the fake Lucy. That's her daughter Carol, played by a Diane Baker, who's wearing a mask, a full mask replica of John Crawford's face with the same hair, the same makeup. They have on the exact same flowery dress with the same bracelets and the same shoes, like I said before, and Carol in Lucy costume throws her axe at Lucy's head, misses, and then they proceed to wrestle on a bed. Real Joan Crawford wrestling with fake Joan Crawford. It's some Mission Impossible shit. This is particularly weird on two levels. It's not just the Joan Crawford mask, but it's also the fact that the makeup and dress and hairstyle that Joan Crawford herself is wearing in character is kind of the makeup and outfits and hair that that younger Joan Crawford would wear in her past. Yeah, the scene where we discover that obviously Carol is impersonating her mom and in that frame where they're wearing the same outfit and Carol's got her mask on and it's just like doppelgangers, you know, Joan Crawford. It really startled me because when I was a kid, I didn't actually get to that point of the movie. I stopped it because I was too scared. So I never knew the reveal. So I only discovered it rewatching it now. And it really frightened me. Like it was actually genuinely like a shocker. I was like, oh my God, like who's this other woman? You know, (laughs) it just did not occur to me. And then of course we find out that it's been Carol the whole time. And she's had this plan to kind of, frame her mother because she already had this like murderous past and um and she obviously looks very unhinged and distressed and i feel like this mask um is very symbolic because it's sort of we, we hear you know carol simultaneously screaming that she loves her mother but also hates her you know there's this strange ambivalence that I feel the mask represents is this fear of turning into her mother you know actually like embodying her mother and repeating her mother's past and also I feel like because Lucy was a child when she actually witnessed the traumatic moment of the double murder you know in a way maybe her mother imprinted her you know, through this action and that horrific image of the murder just kind of stayed on Lucy's consciousness and it just became completely embedded in her personality. Witnessing something like that, especially during formative years, it can be extremely upsetting and, you know, a child wouldn't know how to like cope with something like that. So it's almost as if, 
all those years of missing out on Lucy being her mom, maybe like embodying her now as an adult as a way of like, obviously a very, very dysfunctional way of having some kind of like intimacy and closeness with her mother, like to make up for that gap in the space. Um, it's actually very sad. You know, it's very, it's very shocking. Well, I mean, the film is very clever in the way that it structures, you know, and introduces this new present day relationship. Because initially we we think that Carol is very well adjusted. You know, she's a creative type. She she has an art studio and stuff. And she seems very caring. You know, she seems very um yeah, just attentive and thoughtful. So when her mother is released, it seems as though Carol is like welcoming her back in her life. Like we don't know about the ulterior motive at this point. We just see that Carol seems to be the one looking out for her vulnerable childlike mother, actually. Like the roles are reversed. It's as if Carol is the mother taking on this kind of like attentive, nurturing role in relation to her mother, who's now seeming, I, I don't know, she seems like incapacitated somehow. She obviously is very, very daunted coming out of an institution of, after 20 years. And we we see Carol wanting to give her mother a makeover, like recreating her past look down to the wig, you know? <laughs> um, and we see that this is also having negative effects on Lucy. Like there's resistance and she feels like she's slipping back into something from the past and it's she doesn't like it like I, and at first when I was watching the movie I was like oh um you know Carol has good intentions she just wants to somehow like I don't know like almost breathe new life into her childhood and remember her mother as she was I didn't realize that there was really an ulterior motive um you know a bigger plan like a master plan trying to frame her mother for new murders and that this makeover was really something else it was setting the stage for something else so um yeah it was a very interesting like relationship to think about I planned this one from the beginning when I knew she was coming back. You planned? Of course. I knew your parents would object to the marriage, but we're rid of them now. Everyone will think that Lucy is the murderess. Don't you see? She's insane. She's insane. She's insane. At the end of the film, Carol is revealed to have been the orchestrator and the person behind the new murders all along and Lucy is exonerated and last seen visiting her daughter who was now confined in the same facility that Lucy had been stuck in for 20 years. So a happy ending, kind of? Not so much for The Killing Kind, a 1973 film by Curtis Harrington, whose name do remember because he will come up in a future episode as the foremost director of hag horror in the 70s, very much picking up Robert Aldrich's baton. The Killing Kind starts off disturbingly with a gang rape, before becoming progressively worse. Our protagonist is the meek, but violent Terry, who, after getting released from prison for participating in said assault, comes back to live with his mother, Thelma. 
Thelma is played by Anne Southern, who, at this point in her career, was working only sporadically due to health issues, but had been mostly known as a comedic actress. In the 30s and 40s, she had had her own 10-film franchise of comedies about a burlesque Brooklyn girly called Maisie. And in the 50s, she too joined the television revolution and had her own sitcom, Private Secretary, which was consistently in the top 10 most viewed shows in America and garnered her several Emmy nominations. After a fight over profits with other producers of the show, she then had another hit TV show and also ventured out into business, owning a cattle ranch, a sewing business, and several production companies. And somewhere in there, she signed on to make The Killing Kind, which is a vicious, vicious little film, particularly so towards women, which... As this hag horror subgenre progressed throughout the decades, became kind of a consistent factor. The hag kind of became the secondary character, very much the villain as opposed to the villain protagonist. So Terry, who's our highly questionable leading man, is the character that we're following throughout the film. And he feels so wronged for being in prison for a rape that he did commit that he goes back to his mommy. And his mommy, Thelma, fully supports and indulges in this misogynistic and deranged view of himself. Yeah, well, I mean, he's been, you know, released from prison for sexual assault, um, where it's claimed he was involved in seemingly like a gang rape. It's kind of a horrific situation. And now he comes back to lives with his mom and he seeks to get revenge against people that he perceives had wronged him. Um, now, the relationship with his mother is extremely concerning. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I'm of the view that Terry and his mother Thelma are in... What I would describe, now this is using some like official like psychological lingo here, what I would describe as um, an enmeshed family. So enmeshment is also known as emotional incest. Um, so this is when there are no boundaries between members of a family um, instead of like strong bonds that signal a well-functioning family unit, um, here in an enmeshed situation, family members are fused together by unhealthy emotions. Usually enmeshment is rooted in trauma or illness. And I just feel like Thelma is overly and inappropriately reliant on Terry. Like he he's serving like, I don't know, a man of the house role for her. And um, like, he's not even really allowed to become emotionally independent or separate from his mother. It's, they're just too close, not just living in close quarters, but like she, she's too controlling of his emotional life, of his romantic life. Um, she keeps tabs on him. There's surveillance, um, you know, and, and also I feel like he is infantilized. So he's not allowed to kind of move on to the next step of his life. He's also coming back from this, you know, of course, very disruptive situation in his life. Um, 
he's been away for two years and now he's come back. It's just creepy how she's always asking him if she, if he wants chocolate milk. (laughs) The milk thing. We'll get back to it. Well, initially it's I, I I recall him like spying on the lodger like being a peeping Tom so obviously that is you know crossing acceptable boundaries but I also recall him killing Thelma's cat yes and I was very disturbed by that like I mean I don't know maybe I should have seen him coming I maybe I should have predicted that how it was going to go down because usually in these kinds of films if you see a pet it's like okay something's gonna happen to this poor animal mm-hmm. um, i'm thinking of like you know fatal attraction and even like single white single white female you know mm-hmm. um and this was a really cute cat as well that was very sad to see <laughs> am i right in thinking actually now i'm just recalling he did he strangle the cat while he was pe- like being a he was oh it my was God. it was sort of an accidental strangling but the cat meows and that's it. That's it. then he 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 shuts it up and accidentally strangles it oh my gosh it's so but isn't that symbolic though like the fact that his sexual impulse which here is you know it's is not being adequately re- regulated like he's misbehaving he should not be spying on a woman through the window but it isn't it interesting that through this act he is harming his mother's pet you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and i i don't know maybe i'm maybe this is like a a stretch like a freudian stretch like but he killed his mother's pussy <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I don't. Said, I don't think that's a stretch, to be honest. I just feel like you know it is. Con- it's connected in the sense mm-hmm. that his um, display of an interest towards another woman mm-hmm. is being perceived by his mother as herself being shunned, like her mm-hmm. sexual drive is being inhibited by the fact that he's looking at another woman, and she really is mean to this lodger as well. Like Mary says, the relationship between Terry and Thelma is codependent and violent, completely enmeshed. Terry seems to be directing his frustration and inadequacy onto other women, and his domineering and infantilizing mother encourages this behavior by her coddling of him. Keep away from her, Terry. Who, Thelma? I saw the way you looked at her. And I wish you'd call me mom. I was just looking. Mm-hmm. You stay away from him, do you hear? Look at you, show it everything you got. He did this. It's your fault. I saw you leading him on like a cheap whore. Now you stay away from him, do you hear me? <sighs> oh my gosh. I mean, I feel like Thelma is guilty of a double standard here. <laughs> and that's putting it mildly. Because like in her eyes, he can do no wrong. Like he's, he's like, he's the best. Like he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, he, he doesn't need to bear any responsibility, any accountability. Like, can he, you know, he doesn't put a foot wrong. And yet she reserves her anger and, 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 and her resentment tor- towards women, you know, and I feel like, I don't know if this is inter- an, an internalized misogyny or 
um, just wanting so much to be like at the center of her son's life because they are in an enmeshed relationship. You know, there it's, it's an enmeshed family bond, which is huge red, red flags. Like that is very, very toxic. Um, because in that kind of situation, when boundaries are blurred between family members and, you know, obviously today, like it is, it's totally normal because of like the housing crisis for adults to maybe, you know, move back in with their parents for a short time. Like that is not itself a sign of investment. That's that, that sometimes is just an, a, a convenient arrangement. I'm talking specifically about where emotional boundaries are blurred. So you can still live in the same house, but respect boundaries. Um, and I just feel like here, um, she she resents, you know, any interest that he takes in other women. And so all other women becomes become rivals to Thelma. That's how she perceives them. And um, it's just very unhealthy and just double standards. Thelma very much teaches Terry a hatred of other women, any woman that is not her. She sneers at any other girl or young woman in his orbit, including the victim of his assault. She fuels his violent misogyny with her own disdain towards any other woman. That is, any other woman who isn't her. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying Terry is a victim, but what I am saying is that the killing kind is a truly grimy portrait of a codependent, emotionally fucked up relationship between a mother and a son. The thing with hag horror films is that for the most part, they don't end well. Which brings me to the milk thing. This is very much the visual motif of Terry and Thelma's relationship. And in a very icky movie, it is the most icky thing about it, which is saying a lot. Throughout The Killing Kind, Thelma is constantly feeding her adult son milk, even until his very end, when she serves him poisoned chocolate milk and cradles him as the police arrive and take him away. Knowing that she can't do anything to help him any longer, Thelma prefers to kill her son and takes one last picture of him as a keepsake. The poisoned milk carries a particularly heavy symbolism, as Mary explained to me. So this is interesting because I feel like it symbolically really is leaning into the fact that her own kind of corrupted maternal in instincts, you know, like the milk from her breast, which is supposed to nourish a child, which is supposed to make the child strong and healthy, and you, you would want, you know, hopefully, if you're a mother, you would want your child to one day be independent of you, strong enough to live without you, like instill survival instincts in them so that if you're ever gone, they will thrive. They'll still be okay, you know? And in this case, it's like that is not what's going on. Like she is um, with constantly, constantly asking about the chocolate milk. Um, it is interesting also that it should be chocolate milk. Like, I feel like she's muddying the waters in the sense, like she, she, the, the milk, the nourishing, empowering milk that comes from the body of the mother to sustain her child is now like some sick thing, you know, some overly sweet, overbearing, um, kind of like 
just weird pacifying agency in the story that's also like rotting his teeth it's it sh- you know you shouldn't be drinking that much chocolate milk come on now like it's not good for you <laughs> not after a certain age and it's like she, he's she's still treating him as a child it's like she doesn't want him to be independent you know she wants him to be her little play pal like always by her side and um and i think the fact that in the end you know rather than turning him in rather than cooperating you know with law enforcement and actually like looking at the situation honestly she poisons his milk like that to me is perfect some you know symbolism for what she's been doing all along because she's already been corrupting him anyway with her overbearing maternal um you know features and he's kind of killing him softly for a while and then she kills him much less softly (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly Exactly. And it's like, this is a really good, you know, it it sort of plays on the fears of society about what can go wrong in mothers, like how things can go really, really bad and how it's unnatural for a mother to kill their child. But they do so in all these subtle ways and then top it off by actually physically killing them. So it's a it's it plays on those fears. (laughs) Poison Milk also makes an appearance in the next film I wanted to cover in this episode. Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, also known as Night Warning, from 1981. Neither Mary nor I had seen this film before working on the series, and were kind of shocked in a good way. In the film, Teenage boy Billy is being raised by the woman he believes to be his aunt Cheryl, played by Susan Terrell. Cheryl is portrayed as a woman driven mad by sexual unfulfillment, very much in line with the depraved elder women sexuality vibes that are present throughout the entirety of the hag horror subgenre. She aggressively comes on to a poor man who's just trying to repair her TV, and when he rejects her, she stabs him to death. Throughout the film, Cheryl actively hinders Billy, limiting his independence and causing him to miss out on opportunities that might take him away from her. She poisons his food so he misses out on a sports game, so she has to take care of him. She grows very jealous when she sees him with his girlfriend and genuinely tries to, through harm and foul play, to engineer situations that will bring them two together, even if it means hurting him. She's amazing. Like she's an amazing performer, very, very convincing, embodies the role really well, um, taps into that fear of um, a woman feeling like a, a woman of a certain age, feeling um, insecure about her place in society, feeling unfulfilled until unless she has a male companion, co-opting a younger man to fulfill that role and then feeling triggered if if there's any mention of him ever leaving her you know so it's really well arranged in that regard as a kind of mommy issue exploitation film susan tyrell who plays cheryl was hand selected by the producers based on her performance in john houston's film fat city for which she had been oscar nominated 
Tyrell, who had started her career in Broadway and was very much a part of the Andy Warhol scene in New York City, was only 36 at the time of making Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, but she gives this really exaggerated, full-throated performance. When she stabs the TV repairman, she throws her whole body at him, doesn't just poke him with a knife. The film goes out of its way to make her look increasingly demented, with her hair all messed up and wearing dowdy, ill-fitting clothes, as if she had dressed herself in the dark. But I find her at her most chilling when she modulates her voice. When she's in front of other people, she has this reasonable, soft-spoken way of talking. But when she's about to losing, her voice becomes strained, childlike, desperate. to Billy that she's actually his mother, not his aunt, she shifts her voice several times in one single take. end of the film, Cheryl drags Billy into her attic, where it is revealed that she has built a sort of shrine to him and his biological dad. Oh, and also, there's a collection of corpses up there. Uh, well, I mean, for me, anytime there's any showing in a, in a horror movie of a secret space inside a house where there's corpses, bones, or like weird obsessive shrines or displays about a certain person that you're fixated on. This is all the death drive, like in psychoanalysis. This is um, showcasing actually like topographically in the movie, in the space inside the house, where there's there's a whole section of her that is basically a zombie. Like it's, it's, it's a space of the undead. It's a purgatorial space where she can't get over something. And then she's sort of like dwelling in the past. She's dwelling in, um, it's basically a place that is the opposite of Eros and psychoanalysis. Eros is vitality, moving forward, being productive, but yes, also sexuality, you know, and vibrancy and dynamism. This whole space inside her house 
is the exact photographic negative of of that. Like it is the death drive, it's repetition, it's the past, it's old patterns bothering her. It's her being preoccupied with unresolved conflicts and traumas. Um, And then also like embodying that death drive, becoming monstrous, you know, enacting violence and brutality on living people around her. Cheryl is possibly every worst idea of a bad mother and a hag deviant sexuality blended together into one great exploitation smoothie. Tyrell's outright performance really comes to a head in her final confrontation with Billy after she has poisoned him with milk. She coddles him and screams and hits him. When he finally stabs her, she plants a final open-mouthed kiss on him like a snake trying to eat him up whole. I found that startling, like truly startling because that in that little glimpse, in that little split second of the open mouth kiss, not a peck, it's like, it's passionate. It's, it's devouring, right? She is the perfect archetype of the devouring mother. You know, this all consuming, overbearing, um, wanting to like is like the unnatural desire of wanting the the subject you've given birth to to re-enter you. Like that is not natural. You should not be. You, there should never be like a journey of the person to return to that to their origins at that level. Like that is why there is an incest taboo. I think because. The origin, your origins are okay if you consider them metaphorically in an abstract way. You reflect on them. You you introspect. But if you're if if you're being with intimate with your mother at that level, um, it's the unnatural trajectory of wanting to re-enter your mother. That is the opposite way of living. That is death. And she is devouring. Like she she is like. She's such a great actress because you really believe, you really believe that action. It is so convincing. And I was not expecting that because so much of the movie is also playing on a a melodramatic note. But then you see a moment like that and it's actually chilling. So it's great. There is another hack film from 1981 that I want to cover. And it might be a bit of a cheeky inclusion because it's not strictly about a mother, but it definitely tackles some of the same themes of deviant or bad motherhood from a different kind of angle. In previous episodes, I've mentioned that the women in exploitation are often, if not always, perceived as bad mothers if they had children and were overbearing or neglectful of them, or if they had failed to have children because of whatever reason, like, I don't know, personal choice. One such woman is the lead character of the fan, actress Sally Ross, who is played by legit Hollywood legend Lauren Bacall, and who is at the receiving end of a series of creepy, obsessive letters from a fan called Douglas, played by Terminator's own Michael Bean. Once again, an actress is the central hag. But contrary to Norma Desmond or Jane Hudson, Sally is still working steadily and genuinely living a pretty nice life. Similarly to other hag horror films, images of a young Lauren Bacall are peppered throughout the movie, tying in the film's fictional actress to the real one. 
And again, Lillian's assistant Belle is much like Elvira in Baby Jane and housekeeper Velma in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, the only voice of reason in the film and are genuinely trying to look out for the women that they're working for. So a lot of these elements of a psycho bitty film are there, but there's only one key difference. Sally is not the problem here. Douglas is. So does Sally Ross in The Fan even fit in the Haxploitation mold? Or more specifically, the bad mother mold? I think she does, but in an indirect way. I think she only does in the perception of the stalker. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain why. I think actually this is really well chosen for an episode specifically on mommy issues and exploitation, Because let's remember, like the plot follows, you know, this famous stage and film actress, right? And, she, and, and Lauren Bacall is such an icon. Like she's so well cast for this. And she is stalked by this violent, deranged fan who begins killing everyone around her. And he's like circling in on her. And he knows her every move. And he, I mean, I don't know how he's doing this. This is before Instagram. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it took effort. It used to take a lot more effort to stalk famous people. Okay. Let's respect the fans. I mean, I respect his commitment to the bit, you know, like <laughs> nowadays you can just do it like, you know, with a few clicks. Um, but yeah, he's really, really obsessed. And he, it's, you can see how there is, so much worship he is so fixated on her he elevates her to this level almost like goddess-like and he's willing to do anything to get close to her and I actually think that that final scene for me is proof that this is a mother thing because after, you know, all the kind of drama ensues and he's being, you know, he's a serial killer. He's, he's eradicating everyone in her circle. Um, he attends her show, right? And they have it out and, uh, he tries to kiss her and she angrily re rebukes, rebukes him for being a psychopath and a murderer. And then his rage subsides and he breaks down in tears, begging Sally to love him. But she uses she uses the lapse in, in his guard to stab him in the neck with his own knife, killing him. And she exits the, the theater, leaving Douglas dead, Douglas's dead body in one of the seats. And then the voiceover is basically his first letter to Sally. And I'm just going to read the few lines from it because I think it's very revealing. He says, Dear Miss Ross, I have finally worked up, up enough courage to write to, write to you. I am your greatest fan. Because unlike the others, I want nothing from you. The only thing that matters to me is your happiness. I am a friend. And I am someone you can turn to in times of distress. But I know the time is now right. We will be lovers very soon, my darling. And believe me, I have all the necessary equipment to make you very, very happy. You do not know me, but who I am does not matter. If there is such a thing as a soul, which is the basis of all life, 
then you are my soul. Your life is my life. This is the first letter of what I hope will be an everlasting correspondence. Your greatest fan, Douglas Breen. And to me, like this is, he sounds like he's of her body. Like he sounds like he's come out of her. He's talking about sharing a soul with her. I mean, this is a level of fandom that is very concerning because he's mixing reality with fantasy. He feels like there's this intimate bond with her that is really only one way. Like she doesn't even, she has no, she has no clue who this person is. Um, But he, he adores her so much. And I just do not perceive this to be like a sexual attraction in the sense that he fancies her. I actually think that in his crazed mind, like she rules as a mother, like she's almost given birth to this desire to to worship her. And a lot of the times in a, in a mother son dynamic, I mean, you know, in, in Freud talks about like the Oedipal phase of the psychosexual development. And in that stage of life, in a child's mind, the mother is like a goddess. Like she is like the child's entire world. The child is obsessed like a crazed stalker, you know, will follow the mother everywhere she goes. Mother is the name for God on the child's lips, you know? Um, And this is, I feel how this entire movie is structured. The fact that he still lays in that theater seat facing the stage where he 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 saw his 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 idol right his goddess and is is just is sort of undead you know he's sort of he's immovable he he's been there the whole time as a fan he's he's crazy he can't get past the performance he he lives in that deranged state of being connected to this public figure who doesn't belong to him like he's living in a fantasy world and in that regard i think that it is he's internalized this like mother-son dynamic that is simply one way it is not reciprocated beautifully put here by mary wilde as she draws the connection between the mother-son dynamics and parasocial relationships a term that is very familiar to us now since the advent of social media and that is used to describe one-sided emotional relationships with a celebrity or a well-known figure that somewhat might feel has a direct relationship with them, but who doesn't really. It just goes one way. Here though, instead of the mother wanting the son, the desire, comes from Douglas, the would-be son of Sally Ross. With Douglas, the fan is interested in queerness but doesn't quite know where it stands. There's a particularly violent scene where he goes to a gay bar, gets picked up by a man and then kills said man while this poor guy is going down on him. I've read several interpretations of the film and both are valid and either one of them changes the tone of the fan completely. On the one hand, Douglas might be using a queer man's death as a distraction for the police as they search for him to lead them off his scent, and which would tap into how terrifyingly disposable and unprotected were the lives of queer people at the time of the film's making in the 70s and the 80s. 
Another reading is that Douglas is so consumed with his own self-loathing about his sexuality that he projects his real desire for men onto a female star. Either way, it's not great. The film is either using gay men as bodies to harm with absolutely no consequences, or it's a portrait of a gay man driven crazy because of his inability to come to terms with his sexuality. Meanwhile, Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker is surprisingly progressive for an exploitation film of the same year. In the film, Billy's basketball coach, who, is, who he's really close with, is openly gay and has a boyfriend. And when he's murdered, it's the police officers investigating the murder that are revealed to be grotesquely homophobic and very keen to dismiss the whole thing as a, quote, gay man's quarrel. The four films I've covered in this episode are not what I would call good, but they're fascinating nonetheless. Especially when it comes to portraying truly unhinged female characters, and in the case of later films like The Killing Kind, The Fan, and Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, they have completely shed that leftover gloss of old Hollywood. They're sweaty, grimy, violent, and pervy. And to wrap up this episode, I want to end on this recurring motif of poison milk because it perfectly encapsulates the idea of the bad mother in exploitation. It, it, you know, it is touching on what you ought never see, which is the original mother's milk, the breast of the mother, which is supposed to sustain you. It's supposed to keep you alive and keep you growing and developing, and hopefully being independent. That's, you know, that is how child rearing is supposed to go. The poison milk is really playing really well in both of these films as a symbol of the corrupted intentions of a mother who wants to hoard the child. You know, in the fan, we see the, the would-be desiring son wanting to, to, to hoard the mother, but it's equally disturbing when the mother is trying to hoard the child all for themselves and it's failing the, the launch of the child into the world and being like greedy and needy and obsessive and wanting to keep them almost like in a Peter Pan stage of never growing up. This is this goes against nature. So I feel like the poison milk is a great symbol of 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 like when mothers go wrong. Next you know? week, <laughs> there'll be a little break on the main feed. And then I'll return to cover rivalry in hag horror and the return of the hag with the 90s camp classic, Death Becomes Her. Thank you so much for listening to the Final Girls podcast and our series on hags. Thank you as ever to Mary Wilde for her brilliant contribution. And do go check out her own show, The Projections Podcast. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Anna B. Demented. And you can dive into our previous seasons where we've covered witches, vampires, female monsters, and teen horror. I hope you're enjoying the hag season so far. Let me know what you think of it on social media. And have a great festive break. <laughs>